Hi, my name is Kat. I'm a compulsive reader bulimic. And when left to my own devices, I feel like I have no reason to be standing up here sharing. Um, so I'm just throwing it out there that this is a meeting I got absent in. This was the first meeting I took a service commitment at. And the fact that I get to stand up here and talk about any recovery I've gotten in this program feels like a miracle. So I'm very grateful for that. So I just want to start off with that. Um, I used to start leading meetings when I was asked to lead by saying I was born a compulsive overeater. I'm not sure if that's true anymore because my mother called me, I don't know, maybe eight, nine months ago and read me a card that my aunt sent me um, for Halloween when I was little. And I, she sent it to me last night. And it, the gist of it is it was right before Halloween and um, I had just started walking. I was about 10 months old. So she wrote me a little letter to remind me, your mom's going to give you Halloween candy. So this is a reminder, don't get fat from all the trick-or-treats that she lets you eat. Um, my mom, so I don't know if I was born one. If I was or I wasn't, I certainly had family members helping to fan the flame of this disease, like right out the gate. Um, she, my mom also told me on the phone last night that my aunt also talked to her about my quote, chubby little baby arms, because she was concerned that if I had, if I had chub, then I would have chub forever, and it, it, you know, keep an eye on it, to which I say is not only a horrific thing to say to a child, but also criminal, because little baby arms are the cutest things in the world, and how dare you, um, but it was certainly a good reminder that when left to my own devices, because I've had a lot of training from my family, I can go right back into this disease very quickly. Um, so just to qualify, I have about six and a half years of abstinence. My abstinence is no binging, no purging, no recreational sugar. I have a red light food list that I don't eat. And then I also abstain from, but it doesn't necessarily break my abstinence, from white flour and meat. Um, those are different things that don't necessarily break my abstinence. They're there for different reasons. But the fact that I can have something that I abstain from by choice and after giving it a lot of thought. I don't know, it's just a miracle that I can abstain from anything at this point. Um, I used to show up in this room and sit right in this area and think, please someone help me. Please someone help me get this because no matter what I do and no matter what I say and no matter what I tell myself, which was usually very punishing, um, I can't get thin. That was my motivation for coming into the room. I came for the vanity, I'm still here for the sanity, uh, which is a daily practice. Um, so, growing up in a household with an aunt who was there to remind me how to diet from a very young age, I also had a father who still to this day um, considers it a mark of success to be fit, quote unquote fit. His definition was thin, always on a diet, um, always exercising. We would lose him, even into my teenage and college years, we would lose him when we knew if we couldn't find him, he was probably at the gym. Um, didn't matter if we had plans, because that was the higher power. It wasn't just his higher power for a long time, it was our higher power for a long time. Um, so around when I was young, like the first images that I have of myself, I was about four, and I was standing out with some older kids in the neighborhood who were telling me I couldn't do something because I was too little and I was a girl. And I remember looking at them, wagging my finger at them, and saying, no, I can do whatever you can do. I was really feisty, I was really spunky, um, and I lost that pretty soon after. So my work in this, in this room 
and my work towards my recovery is kind of trying to get back to that girl who I think I was kind of born as before life kicked in in a way. Um, maybe less finger wagging. The work I'm doing. Um, but very soon after something happened, I don't know what, I don't have any memory of it, but I hit first grade and I was terrified of everything. Everything was terrifying. Everything was scary. I couldn't leave my mom. Something happened. I don't know what. It doesn't matter. If I'm meant to remember, I'll remember. Right now, I don't. Um, but one of my first memories of going to school, every instant of it was agonizing. But I knew if I made it to lunch, my mom would pack my lunch, and she would write me a note and wrap it around a candy bar. So very quickly, which was a very nice gesture and didn't come with any, you know, my brain took it as food is comfort. She was just trying to make me feel better because I was having a hard time. Um, but some of my earliest memories were if you're feeling down, if you fall down and get hurt, food will fix it. And I've noticed myself every now and then want to do that to kids because that's what I was raised with. So I'm consciously trying to undo that. Um, so I grew up in a house where I was terrified. I don't know what happened. Food was fixing it. But at the same time, I was learning that food is the enemy. You don't want to eat food because if you eat food, you'll get bad and that's bad. Um, I look back at photos now of me because I'm five foot ten. I'm tall, um, so I'm always I was always the tallest kid in class. I always felt big, so I always felt bigger in all senses, especially in a house where I'm constantly being reminded of size. And when I hit twelve, oh, what I was going to say is I look back though at photos. And I expected the first time I found photos to see this really huge, huge girl because in my mind, I had a lot of work to do on myself. And she's a totally fine, healthy weight girl. She, it was like I was looking at a different person when I looked back at those photos. Um, and around 12, once puberty started kicking in, my parents sat me down and said, we've noticed you've put on a little weight, your body's changing, we want you to watch your food intake, and we're gonna get you a personal trainer. So I went with all the adults to the gym and got on a workout routine. Um, and I remember my personal trainer telling me, like commenting on how strong I was getting. There was always this, if I was working out, if I was eating the way my parents said was good to eat, there was a lot of, I got a lot of accolades and verbal confirmations for that. So it was always like, okay, I gotta keep doing this to be, to feel love. Um, I would go in at recess after lunch and write down all the calories I had eaten and make sure I was in the appropriate window, which I, I don't know what that window was at the time, but I'm sure it's far lower than it should ever be, probably for a human being, especially for a growing girl. I discovered bulimia in high school. Uh, in the form of laxatives, because to me at the time, it felt like I'm not doing well at not eating. I always want to eat. Eating comforts me. It's helping me deal with all these feelings that I was never able to deal with appropriately. Um, but here's a way where I can eat and then, quote unquote, keep the weight off. Of course, that doesn't work, but it felt like a solution at the time. And I ran with it for a long time. Um, I never did it daily, but the reason I liked the bulimic part of my disease, quote unquote liked, is because it felt like a punishment. And I felt like I should be punished if I was eating too much. So um, I always felt really trapped. I always felt like I, I was really yearning for independence. So I worked really hard to go away to school. 
And I thought, once I get there, it's this addict, grass is greener mentality. Once I get there, everything's going to be better. And for a couple months in college, it was great. I had a good time. Um, and I also noticed, I have to say, you know, in doing steps and writing about my food journey, those first couple months in college, when I was, I think, genuinely happy and I felt good, I don't remember having food issues. I remember going to the gym but not obsessing over it. And I've noticed this correlation in my life where when I'm happy or when I'm doing what I feel is good for me, food doesn't come up as much. Exercising feels good, but it doesn't feel like a punishment. Um, and when I feel bad, the first thing I do is use food and then punish myself for using food. And as an addict, even though I'm abstinent, I'll find a million ways to even try to do that now within the realm of my abstinence. So my program, the way I stay recovered, is working with rigorous honesty. If I do something with my food that even feels remotely out of bounds, i got to call my sponsor. i got to talk about it and say, here's what I did, here's why I did it, had a couple extra bites or something, nothing that breaks my abstinence, but i got to be honest. Because if I'm not honest with myself, then I'm going to be living in a lie, I'm going to be living in fear, I'm going to go back to the food. It is that simple for me. Um, so the first couple of months in college were really fun and kind of fancy free. And then January of my freshman year, I was assaulted by someone I knew, and it happened very quickly. And in that moment, my whole world changed. Everything, the world spun on its axis as far as I was concerned. The world became scary. The people I had quickly become to trust. Um, I didn't feel like I could talk to them about things. I didn't feel like I could open up because what happened to me felt somehow like I was accountable for it. So I started turning back to the food. My sophomore year, I was assaulted again. My senior year, I was date raped. So by the end of this college experience, that was supposed to be the best experience of my life at the time, which I obviously no longer subscribe to for a number of reasons, it became a really unsafe place. Not just because of the people who did something they shouldn't have done, but because the people around me, I didn't trust myself, I blamed myself, I felt like I couldn't talk to the people around me about it, and when I tried to talk about it, the response I was met with, at best was discomfort, at worst was apathy. So I turned to the food, because the food has always comforted me, the food never talks back, the food I don't know, shares in my pain with me, or that's how it felt at the time. So by the end of college, I would make this chain on the way home from classes, a fast food restaurant, ice cream shop, donut shop, whatever it was, and I'd eat, 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 and I'd eat in my car, and I had a really big purse, which I still do, um, so I could hide the bags. Now there's just crap in my purse. <laughs> uh, but... I had my spots, and I would hit them, and then I'd get home, and I had this really good method of, because I'm such a good addict, and I'll just run in, hide the bags in the trash, put paper towels on top of them, or whatever I need to do, so nobody knows. Like, anybody cares, but nobody knows. And then I would get home, and my roommates would say, we're hungry, do you want to go get something to eat? And I'd like, yeah, I'm starving. And then I'd go eat another meal, because as long as I'm eating, I'm pushing down those feelings that felt very painful and hard to deal with at the time. Eventually, those feelings caught up to me, um, no amount of food would do it. And I sought outside help. And around the same time I came into these rooms, and I identified and I knew I belonged here, but I wasn't ready to be in the rooms quite yet. Um, I stayed in outside help and moved to L.A. around that time as well and started working here. And anytime I was stressed, 
hungry, angry, lonely, tired, I would turn to the food. Because again, that's the only tool I had. I had a tool bag full of like places to go eat. Those were my tools. It's like I got a binder full of menus from restaurants. What are you calling out today? Um, and then I hit 25, and a couple of different things happened. I was worn out from feeling everything I felt in life, a lot of it trauma-based. Um, my system was worn out. My body was worn out. And around 25, I didn't realize, I always said I had a terrible metabolism, but I didn't realize it could get worse. Um, essentially, I started putting on weight really quickly. And I put on about 65 pounds in a year. And all of a sudden, the things that I had been keeping as secrets, you know, the places I would go to eat the food I would put in to keep the feelings down, now I felt like everyone could see that. And it added on another layer of panic. And my solution was then to eat, because that's all I had. And for a while in outside help, I was, I was lamenting about this. I don't know how to fix it. I can't put down the food. I can't put down the food. And my outside help finally said, why don't you go to OA? You tried it before. You said it made sense to you. Why don't you go? And I think at that point, I was really out of options. I felt like I had tried everything on my own. I had people, friends, and family coming up to me trying to hand me options, which I felt mortified about because then I thought, well, they see how broken I am. It was beyond the physical attributes. I felt like they were looking at me and going, you're not enough. You need to work on this. And that terrified me. So there was that. I wasn't happy with myself. I, my tools didn't work. I was using food, which worked for a while when I was little. It wasn't serving me anymore. So I walked into a Friday night meeting in Santa Monica at the cottage. And I don't remember her name. I don't remember what she looks like. All I remember is that the person speaking was so vivacious and excited and full of light and joy and she had what I wanted she was happy she f seemed to me like she was really fulfilled and I thought I gotta stay here I didn't raise my hand there I was a newcomer I was too embarrassed I didn't talk to anybody I sat in the back and I had my mouth shut but I thought I'm gonna come back I'm gonna work this program because it's this or nothing I was, I was at the end of my rope this was the last house on the block and I left the meeting and went through a drive through because that seems terrifying. Um, and it took me about two months to raise my hand and get a sponsor because that meant asking for help. Asking for help in my family meant weakness. So it took a long time. And finally, once I realized I couldn't do it on my own, I asked for help. And my sponsor handed me a yellow highlighter, and she said, go pick up a copy of the big book, start reading, start highlighting, start underlining. Anything that jumps out to you, put an asterisk, asterisk, make a note. And I started reading the big book. And the whiskey and milk story, <laughs> I mean, there was no avoiding that it was me sitting at that, I've been at that counter a number of times and made that same decision, we all have. I belonged in this program, there was no way of talking myself out of it. I needed to work this program. And for about the first six, seven months, I was doing step work, I was going to meetings religiously. I took a commitment in this meeting where we were still at the log cabin. I still remember, I don't remember the number, but I remember I had to count the tiles on the floor to set up the chairs. There was a certain amount of number tiles per chairs that you set up. And I, at the time, I was like, this is what I have to do to be abstinent so every chair <laughs> goes here. 
Um, I've never been so scared to sit up chairs. Um, here's what I'll say about the turning point for me and how I finally came across abstinence. Side note, I used to sit in these first couple of rows and scream in my mind at the speaker, please tell, please give me the secret how to get abstinent. Please tell me, because I was struggling. To anyone who's struggling, work the steps. <laughs> That's it. Sorry. That's it. That's the, the big ticket item in here. Work those steps. I hate, oh, steps annoy me. So it's more work that I have to do. I have to look at myself. I have to pull out uncomfortable things. And I love punishing myself. I love, my disease loves looking at me and saying, here's why you're bad. Here's why you're disgusting. Here's why you're wrong. Here's why you don't matter. That's what my disease operates on. That is the fuel in the car of my disease, and that car will take me right to a drive-thru. This program and these steps have helped me pull back those layers and go, hey, you're allowed to say nice things about yourself. You're enough whether you put this amount of food in your body, this amount of food in your body, whether you run this amount or that amount. Your worth is not dependent upon what you do. Your worth is not dependent on what you have. You're worthy to your human being. Um, my numbers in this room, my abstinent year, the amount of weight I've lost, those are the least interesting things about me. This program has given me the gift of defining who I want to be, going back to that little girl, getting to be feisty within reason. Um, and when I'm not in the food, I have room to decide what I want to do with my life, who I want to be, what feels good. This room helps me explore who I want to be as a person. And I actually like who I am as a person now. A couple years ago, I would have felt like that was very wrong to say. So, the steps. Midway through step one, I called my sponsor, because I kept hearing about rigorous honesty, rigorous honesty, you have to be honest with yourself, you have to be honest with your sponsor. And I had been sneaking cookies on the side and not telling her about it. Because I had one toe in the recovery pool, but I wasn't ready to dive in. And I was talking about it in my outside health office, and he looked at me and he said, maybe you just don't want this badly enough. I thought, don't you tell me what I don't want. And I called my sponsor, and I told her the truth. And she was, is that five? Six. She was appropriately honest with me and said, it's, it doesn't matter what I know or what I don't know. You're working your program for you. You put the work in, you'll get the results. If you want to lie about it, then you're going to get results that don't feel as good. So I really buckled down. That was the turning point for me. And I got accident. And I got accident on November 15th, 2012. Um, what is that? Roughly a week before Thanksgiving, or as I like to call it, our Super Bowl. Um, <laughs> I lost every Super Bowl before I came into this program. <laughs> now I'm doing okay. Now, Thanksgiving, I wake up and I run a 5K with my brothers, which the girl sitting in this room about six, seven years ago would have been like, I don't know who's talking about this, not me. Um, and then I eat breakfast, and then I eat lunch, and then I have a very simple Thanksgiving dinner meal. It is no longer about the food. I no longer prep all day, all week to get to this big binge meal. And that's because of the steps. Uh, I want to say I also grew up religious 
not going to qualify which religion. It's a religion that helped me connect with a higher power from a young age, but there were things about it that I never really grasped beyond that. Steps two and three helped me redefine my higher power. Now, my higher power, um, the best way I can put it in quick and simple terms is that someone described a higher power once like a, like your dog. No matter how long you've been gone, no matter how long it's been in the morning since you've forgotten to feed them, they don't care, they love you so much and they're always happy to see you. That's the best definition I have now of my higher power. There are a lot of times where I forget to check in with my higher power. My higher power is always there when I check in, though. Um, I'm also very clumsy, and so somehow along the way, like if there's a chair to trip over, a wall to click when I'm turning the car, I will hit it. I have a daily quota of things to do. Somehow along the way, that's become a reminder to check in with my higher power. <laughs> so if you see me trip, I'm having a spiritual moment. <laughs> trying to turn a negative into a positive, guys. Um, the last thing I'll say is that service is everything to me. When I'm in my will, when I'm in my stuff, it's me, 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 me. When I turn it around and I'm of service, if I'm setting up chairs, if I'm doing something at a meeting, if I'm finding ways to communicate with people outside of these rooms that are more about being of service than of being there for myself, I'm more in the moment, I'm more open to human connection, I'm giving back to my recovery. And I'm inviting people in, which is very scary for me. It was, it's not anymore, I really like people in general, and it's not a scary thing to invite people in now, which is another gift of this program. So, um, when I'm in my will, I'm not being of service. When I'm being of service, I'm contributing to my higher power, I'm contributing to my well-being, and I'm contributing to someone else's well-being. I can't tell you the difference it makes when there's, I mean, we live in LA, there's some issue on the freeway and someone cuts someone off, and if you turn around and the other person smiles back instead of, you know, doing something <laughs> other than smiling. It really does, it throws my armor down. It causes me to put that shield down, that wall goes down, and then it's like, oh, now we're connected. You know, it's really easy to turn a negative interaction very quickly into a positive one, but for me that took a lot of, like, muscle memory. So now, my biggest thing now and the way I start my day is with meditation, and I set a daily intention. Lately it's been to... My intention yesterday was to look for the childlike version in every person I come across. Because it's really easy to make an enemy out of someone. If I don't like them or if they're making me feel unsafe, it's like, well, they're bad. They're, you know, they're coming for me. No, they're not. They're not thinking about me. They're probably reacting out of their own fear. And I know when I'm in my fear, the thing I need most is for someone to kind of give some sort of warmth or reach out. Because I think the opposite of fear and Sometimes for me, the opposite of addiction is connection. So I'm working really hard to not just ask for that from other people, but to be a connection point when I come across it in my daily life. Um, I guess I'll just wrap up by saying my daily routine looks like me getting up. It changes with the season. If I get tired of something, I change it. Right now, I wake up, I do a meditation, and then I have timers set throughout the day. There's one right before lunch to say the serenity prayer. Then around two, it's a quick meditation if I'm in my office, one, two minutes, tops. If I need more, I can do it. But just a way to pull myself out of whatever stress I've gotten myself into um, throughout the day. And then at three, it switches, thanks, Laratha. Uh, I'll either do a third step prayer or a seventh step prayer. And then at the end of the day, I send the tenth step to my sponsor. Uh, 
And that's it. Thanks for your share. Uh, this is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions I shared with you today are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Questions? Sure. Uh, the question is, can I talk a little bit about sponsorship, being sponsored and sponsoring? Um, I'm thinking of my sponsor right now. I've had three in this program, uh, and they all came and went, I'm very lucky, right when I needed them, and the current sponsor I have has been my sponsor, I think, for a couple of years now. I, my sponsor works with me the way I work with my sponsees. I would not have worked or operated well with a drill sergeant. I was already harsh enough with myself, um, and I fueled my disease with being harsh to myself, so I don't think that would have worked if I had found a sponsor who did that. I would have followed the rules, but it would have been with a lot of disdain for myself. So my sponsor is very gentle with me. She never asks me where I am with the step work. It's on me to turn that in and do that in my own time and of my own accord, and that's how I work with my sponsees. Uh, I firmly believe you get as much out of this program as you put into it, and you have to have the will to keep coming back and to want to put the time in. So, yeah, I would say gentle is the main key to sponsorship. And I'm, I'm really grateful because my sponsor is also kind of like my second mom. So it's really opened me up to um, looking forward to having vulnerable relationships in these rooms. Does that answer your question? question is if I've ever felt pulled by another addiction in this program and how I dealt with it. Right. Roughly. Sure. Um I have not been necessarily felt the call of another addiction. I'm trying to think of how to say this, but I am an Al Anon. And I was not, when I was first working this program, my sponsors kept politely suggesting that I check out Al-Anon. And um, I didn't feel ready for a number of reasons. One, I felt like I was doing a lot of work and spending a lot of time in this program and that felt necessary. Two, um, my father's also an alcoholic and a drug addict and I felt like I didn't want to spend my time doing work on him because I had already done a lot of what I thought was appropriate work on him, trying to fix him, didn't work. Um, so what I did is I started auditing Al-Anon, and I would pop in, and I would stay really quiet towards the back, and I wouldn't say anything, and then I just started finding that I looked forward to Al-Anon meetings, and then I heard someone tell my story, so she became my sponsor, and now I have to work Al-Anon in tandem with OA, because all of my food issues stem from a lot. Most of my food issues stem from Al-Anon related issues. So 
I had to be gentle with myself and, and ease in as I was comfortable. Does that help? Yeah. Sorry, can you say that one more time? Can you talk about how you work with steps on the assaults that you had in college? Yes, I would love to. Can I talk about how I worked with steps around my assaults in college? Oh, let's talk about it. <laughs> I worked, step four was huge for that. All of my assaulters are on my step four list. Uh, I had a really hard time in the beginning with what my part was on the step four on, on that column. Here's what I've come up with, and it will be ever evolving, but what I've come up with so far is that I wrongly believed the lies they told me about myself, which was that I was not worthy. I also used to refer to myself as a rag doll because um, I felt like I was getting thrown around and used by whoever wanted to use me at the time. So part of my program in recovery and part of my ninth step to myself was undoing that. And that's a kind of ever-moving thing. The other part, as far as step work goes, I'm trying to think. I guess it, I don't know exactly what step this fits into, but this is as a result of the steps. Um, my sponsor started having me say prayers for people who I was angry at. And the prayers in the beginning were filled with expletives, <laughs> which felt fair in the beginning. Um, I have forgiven those people. I really, truly, and genuinely hope they are happy and they have found recovery in their own pain because I think actions like that do not come out of thin air. They come out of a lifetime of pain that they're dealing with. It does not excuse what they did by any measure. But I've forgiven them. I try to think kind thoughts about with them when I think of them. And a big part for me was step eight how mean I am to myself as a result of those incidents and now I have to kind of make a daily amends to myself and be kind to myself which for this program looks like I'm not allowed to say mean things about my body I'm not allowed to stand in front of the mirror and pick my body apart I'm not allowed to put any self-worth into around what my body looks like because there's so much more going on with me and my brain and who I am and my body is secondary which at the time my body felt Kind of like the cause of everything. So yeah. Go ahead. Thanks so much. I'm gonna follow up on the other question, which is, you said that when you shared about your assaults with other people, there was, um, I think you used the word, either disbelief or apathy. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you work around that? Okay. Good question. Even more painful than the assault. Yeah. So how did I work around dealing with people I told my story to and how they reacted with mostly disbelief or apathy? Um, That was the hardest part. The event itself was almost easy because it was over with seemingly as quickly as it began. And the hardest part was feeling like the people I trusted most weren't there. So in the beginning, I felt like it was just me. You know, it was me against the world. Now... I've written letters to all those people, and then I went back to where it happened, and I just sat with it for a moment and said a little prayer, and then I threw the letter in the trash nearest to the place it happened. I am not connected to them anymore, which the people pleaser Alan on in me feels like I should be, like I should work through all of it and we should be best friends and everything's fine. 
Um, the recovery, I really like people and I want to be friends with everyone. And it's so hard because that's not the answer. Um, the recovery for me in that instance is that they get to live their lives, I get to live mine. I'm working on forgiveness because they also watched it happen to me at one point. Pieces of it. And I think for them to have that reaction, they must be coming from just as much fear and confusion. And it's not their fault, just like it's not my fault. I'm allowed to get angry at them at times. I'm not allowed to take it out on them. So I really want to work through, and it is a constant thing. But also, my inclination is to be really ashamed. I don't want to go around them because I also had a lot of emotional fallout after it happened. A lot of breakdowns. I have PTSD. I have depression. I have anxiety. A lot of it from all of that. I am okay. I am enough the way I am. I was enough back then. They are okay. They are enough the way they are. Lord knows they were going through their own stuff. It happened the way it was meant to happen. And here's the thing. Here's the biggest thing I'll say from what happened to me. I love who I am now as a result of the work I've had to do because of those incidents. So I would never undo what happened to me, ever. Because I have a lot more empathy now. I like who I am now. So as far, I'm getting off topic, but as far as them, we're not connected anymore, but I wish them well. And when I don't, I have to write a letter or do some work on that. Not send the letter, but journal about it or something like that. Go ahead. Thanks. Um, are there any tools of the program that you have real resistance to? <laughs> <laughs> what tools of the program have you have real resistance to using and have you had a way to get through that? Sure. Oh, what tools did I resist at first? All of them that didn't have to do with food in the beginning. Um, I didn't want to write because my mom used to tell me to write all the time she loved writing and I felt like she was telling me what to do so I hated that and then once I started writing I was like this is a fantastic tool why was I doing it earlier um, I also was not into meditation for a long time meditation is something that I kind of set for myself last year right after I finished step 11 where I was like I'm going to take this year and really dive in and now it's right now it's kind of like my hot ticket tool it's the one I really go to they change as I change um, I'm really into writing letters to my higher power right now and then writing a response, which in the beginning I couldn't do it because I came from a religious upbringing that felt, I felt like that was presumptuous. And now it's like the quickest way for me to key into some self-love. Um, yeah, I, I hope that answers you. I was resistant to all of them at first, but now I, there's definitely a reason in the season for each one. It just depends on what I feel like calling on at the time. And I'm very grateful to my sponsor who will suggest one when I don't. Oh, and gratitude lists. I really love a good gratitude list. Um, I'm at the point where I'm writing one every day because it really helps me after meditation kind of focus my day in because perspective is everything. I can take one situation and be like, here's why it's super bad and here's why it's wronging me. I can just as easily with semantics and perspective go, here's why this situation is great, here's how I get to learn from this situation, and here's how I get to grow from it. Um, so the tools have given me perspective. Yeah. Go ahead. Where do you draw the line between sugar and recreational sugar? What does recreational sugar mean? Good question. So where do I draw the line between sugar and recreational sugar? What does recreational sugar mean to me? In the beginning when I was cutting out sugar, it was desserts. 
Uh, and then I realized breakfast foods, a lot of sugary breakfast foods very quickly got added. Uh, I couldn't figure out why I was coming home and eating cereal for dinner every night. <laughs> um, and then now it, it, the rigorous honesty comes into play. So it's been, it's a constantly changing evolution. Um, it's constantly evolving. I have to be honest with myself. Does this taste sweet? If so, am I called to it? Can I put it down now and be fine? If I can, great, this is okay for me, which is generally just fruit. I'm okay with fruit. Anything else, um, even like most protein bars and stuff, I can't do them. And if it's questionable, then I just don't want to do it because I don't want to risk it. Yeah. Go ahead. You talked about evolving your concept of a higher power. What's your concept of a higher power? What's my concept of a higher power now? Um, aside from the dog metaphor. <laughs> step two for me was, I, did, I expected going into step two, which of course because I'm standing in front of all of you, I can't stay right now to save my life, um, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. So my first sponsor had me read, came to believe, highlight, underline, make notes, and then write out without any outside help the definition of a higher power. So it wasn't allowed to bring in anything that didn't feel right to me after reading this book. And growing up in a religion that I really loved because of the relationship I had with a higher power, I thought this will be a breeze. Step two is when I left my, in, my faith institution because it no longer aligned with my understanding of a higher power. So my higher power is all-inclusive, doesn't judge, doesn't guilt, doesn't shame. My actions aren't meant to be reprimanded. They're meant to be learned from and I'm supposed to grow from them. And if I need to make an amends, I make an amends, but I'm no longer allowed to shame myself. Um, my higher power represents a lot of love and a lot of connection and leaves room for me to be vulnerable and be okay with that. Does that answer your question? Okay, great. Any questions? Um, okay. Why do you think some people like me have uh, a difficult time connecting with a higher power? I mean, from your experience, what mm -hmm. you've heard, <coughs> and uh, why do you think it's that? Why do I think some people have a hard time connecting mm -hmm. with a higher power? <coughs> I have to say, I didn't. I've always had a connection with a type of higher power. The best answer I can give from my experience is that I've had an issue with going into rooms where an idea of a, higher, of a specific higher power has been forced upon me, um, which is why I love the idea of a higher power in this program so much. The best metaphor I heard when I was kind of redefining my higher power was <coughs> The higher, a higher power is anything greater than me, right? So I can go to the beach, I can try to stop the waves from crashing, I can't, that's a power greater than me. I can try to stop the sun from rising and setting, the moon from coming up and out. Rising and set, the moon does something too. <laughs> I am so small in the grand scheme of things, I, have, I don't have power over much, and there are powers all around me that are greater than me. So my job in defining my higher power, redefining it, was shedding perspective on who I am in the scheme of things. And really, I'm trying to figure out the best way to say this. 
turning it around, realizing that there were a lot more people other than me, and most of us are in our will most of the time, and trying to open up to the fact that there are powers around us that are larger, and being more open to that. When I silence my will and my mind, and I open up to the possibilities that are out there, in the powers that are greater than me, I am much more equipped to be open to learning, expanding my knowledge, being in recovery, and being of service to others and connecting with others. Um, yeah, I think that's the best answer I can, can give on that. How many days did it take you to, to release the resentment that you had while praying for, for somebody or a situation or Oh, how many days did it take me to release my resentment? Mm -hmm. I don't have a solid answer to how many days it took. Um, The best answer I can give to that is that my idea of when it should have been time to give up those resentments (laughs) was much sooner than the actual time it took. And it kind of happened when I least expected it. And it's like, you know, the negative things happen and they kind of drop like a bomb. And when I release something like a resentment, it's so light that I barely notice it and I kind of have to get quiet and go, oh, I'm not carrying that resentment anymore. So it's a constant work in progress. I'd really like things to happen in my time because I'd be much farther along. But (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, I have no choice in that. My higher power does. So I'm just kind of strapped in and riding the ride and listening. Just a quick answer to that. How do I use my how did I use my steps, especially in instances like when my mom sent me the card? <coughs> I've done a step four on my aunt. I say prayers for my aunt. She's very much still in her disease to the point where I went to visit her last year. I never saw her because she was in bed using um, so I detach with love I'm not going there again if she's using and I'm sending her love prayers good vibes well wishes and I really hope she finds what she's looking for but it's not my business that's it that's okay. <laughs>